Thank you. Uh, this is actually the NIV version, so it might be slightly different to the ones that you're following, but it's the same psalm from David. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in this land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood on such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Just as you came in, you should have received an outline, and that's going to be a real help to me if you've got that in front of you and maybe of some benefit to you. Um, we'll start recording in a minute, shall we? Because I, uh, sorry, know all of that and not know who I am. Do you like the films, by the way? Really, really cool films, aren't they? Okay. Um, in many ways, we are all collectively suffering from dementia. Now, there's not a single person here who hasn't experienced the effects of someone living with dementia. And perhaps the deepest pain of, of living with dementia is not memory loss per se. Now, all of us now joke, um, out of nervousness, it has to be said, you know, when our memory fails and fades, and, you know, some of us are getting to a certain age, um, Pat's just looking down at that. She, I thought she was going to look at me when I said that. I thought you were going to look at me. But anyway, so... But then, of course, we, oh, have I got, have I got, you know, my memory's failing me. The deepest pain, though, is actually loss of identity. Because fundamental to all our lives is that understanding, that consciousness of who I am. And I know who I am in connection with my memories, don't I? That's, that was the problem with Bourne. That was the problem with Bourne, really. Um, interconnectedness, that those memories place me with people, places, events. But if those are gone, if those are fading, now that's pretty frightening, isn't it? Now, I, I'm saying that because what if God's people didn't know who they truly were? What if God's people, the church, didn't know who they truly were? A and in the same way as people, God's word places collectively our identity, who we are, um, in certain events, people, and places. But if those are missing, our identity is gone. And frankly, when we look at the church around the world, especially in the UK and in many places in the West, there is a creeping dementia which takes away our, our true God-given identity. We replace it with something else, of course. We'll always replace it with something else. 
Um, but it's not what God would have us have as the foundation to who we are, how we perceive ourselves. So, you know, the church is often seen um, as a spiritual version of the National Trust, um, or in this area, historically, um, an amateur dramatic society. There's still a few churches which still have that identity, um, or uh, some sort of social club or whatever. But who does God say we are from God's perspective. And that's what we're going to be thinking about um, the whole of this term. Um, now, apologies, there are just a few people who've heard this before because I, I gave this at uh, the last Worship Central, um, but uh, I'm going to repeat it here this morning. Um, since coming back from sabbatical, many people have asked me, what did God say to you while sitting on your mountaintop? both metaphorically and literally, it has to be said. What new word has he given you? Now, I, I've disappointed a lot of people in my reply. By the way, if someone comes to you and says, I've got a new word from God, always be suspicious. Always be suspicious. Yeah, I, I was at a meeting once with a guy, um, and he had, to an amazing degree, the charismatic gift of prophecy and words of knowledge. And uh, if you don't know what that is, see me afterwards and I'll explain. And, and he, was, he was able to bring an incredible sense of what God was saying. But he said once, a lady went up to him and said, Oh, Pastor Cain, um, could you give me a word from the Lord? And uh, he, he, he got a Bible and kind of threw it at her and said, Lady, here are thousands of them. So what I'm saying is, actually, when it comes to the church, we, we shouldn't be looking as people do for the next new thing. We do that in our culture, don't we? We do. What's the next new thing? There must be some secret magic answer, magic bullet to all our problems. And that's true in culture. That's also true in the church. Just be wary of that. So I, I, I'll disappoint you. What, what was the thing? Two things I brought back from my sabbatical. Okay, here they are. You ready for this? The earth is going to shake. Number one. I just loved being a member of a small local church. It was wonderful. And, and just being a part of a small local church was just incredible. It was the greatest gift of all. Now, that's not earth-shaking, is it? But it's a fundamental, simple truth. Here's the second one. Are you ready for this? That actually maybe God is, is calling us to love him and love other people. Now, that, that's not new, is it? It's not new, is it? You know, how can we disciple each other? How can we pastor each other? How can we love Christ more, love each other more, reach out to those around us with that love? How can we be as a church in a deeper, life-giving, Christ-honoring, God-glorifying relationship with Him? And I think the most effective ways are probably the simplest ways, really. You know, how can we, how can we be that church? And, and it kind of starts, really, with understanding who we are from God's perspective. So, I've been living over the past eight months with a verse uh, from the Bible, Psalm 16, verse 3. And I have literally ran with that over many miles. I have climbed many mountains with this in my mind, literally. Um, and I've been living with this. And it's a verse which, frankly, normally we would kind of pass over when we read this psalm. But to me, it's just reminded me of, of God's vision and purpose for the church. Psalm 16, verse 3, um, 
in this version, this NIV version. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. That's the verse, okay? And we're going to spend the next seven or eight weeks looking at just that one verse. <laughs> now, the context of the psalm is interesting. Um, David entrusts himself to a faithful living God. He expresses confidence and contentment in his care, even though even though the circumstances around him are far from perfect. In fact, anything less than that. And so in verse 1, I love this verse. He says, keep me safe, O God, for in you I find refuge. You've heard me speak about this verse before. The focus is not on his safety, it's on God. So he's kind of saying, keep me in you, God. Keep me in you. That's the heart of his safety. That's the heart of our safety and security. It's in him. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, he says so in verse 2. Um, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That's what it means to find our safety and security in God. You know, you are apart from you. I have no good thing. He's not hedging his bets here. It's an incredible affirmation of who this God is. I have no good thing. That's not saying he has no other good thing in his life, but it is saying that actually that relationship with God is the greatest thing. And actually, in him, all other things become good too. It's that way round. But then something really surprising happens in the psalm. Have you ever been driving and you, you don't get it into gear and it's really clunky and crunchy? You've done that before? And you have here one of those kind of um, moments when it doesn't move smoothly from our perspective because he's speaking about God and then he says something different in verse 3. And, and from a modern perspective, this is the problem. In the West, we have a very individualistic relationship with God. It's all about me and the Lord. Me and my worship. You know, me and, um, and, and what I feel, me and what I experience. That's a really alien idea in the Bible, by the way. And David torpedoes that perspective because this is what he says in verse 3. He says that that relationship with God that finding my safety and security in him, that finding my ultimate good in him, cannot be separated or divorced from the relationship I have with other people. In other words, delighting in God, Psalm 37 verse 1, delight yourself in the Lord, and delighting in his people, that's what he's saying here in verse 3, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight, are the two sides of the one coin. Got that? Delighting in God, delighting in, in his people, two sides of the one coin. And, and you can't do one without the other, which is really, really maddening. Because I would think most of us can be pretty confident when it comes to God, but not so confident when it comes to each other. True? Yeah, you're lying. It is true. Because, you know, all of us are sinners. Uh, and, and all of us struggle, um, even in the best of our relationships. But he's saying delighting in God, delighting in in God's people, the two sides of one God. And then, to kind of contrast it, he says this, delighting in God means delighting in his people, but not delighting in other sources of security. Verse 4, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. That means, he's saying, there are other sources of well-being, other sources of security, other sources out there, but I'm, I'm not going to find my delight there. No, I'm going to find my delight in God and his people, which, by the way, that starts to, to shape our minds. And, and sometimes we hedge our bets. 
we hedge our bets because, you know, we, we kind of find uh, a certain amount of, of, of good stuff in our relationship with God, but then we'll kind of look to other places um, as well. And uh, I would say that God actually is calling people to, it's a very exclusive relationship, this actually. Uh, and that needs to shape our lives. It needs to shape my diary. It needs to shape how I use my time. So, okay, so what does this mean? Okay, a number of things. Number one, realize who you are. Realize who you are or realize who we are. And, and he says, I'm a saint. As for the saints who are in the land, that's who we are. This is our identity in Christ. I am a saint. That doesn't mean I always feel like a saint. It doesn't mean I always act like a saint, but that's who I am. That is the description of a Christian in the Bible. It's not some sort of person in a stained glass window. It's not some sort of, you know, as um, holy person, some guru. The saints are the church. Got that? Yeah, just, just nod. You want to hold hands. Connect with the living, okay? Right. That's who we are. This is a privileged description given to me by Jesus Christ. This is my identity. Have a look at 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Um, again, you are a chosen, you are, a, if you follow Christ, you are chosen by him. You are a royal priesthood. There are no priests in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus Christ is our high priest. So all of us can have a relationship with God. You don't have to go through uh, someone. You go through Jesus. You're a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's who we are. Because of God's grace rather than human choice. Because of Christ's work rather than human accomplishment. But then it says in Romans 1.7, and again, Paul uses this a lot of times. These are just examples. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be... To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be... Saints. Ephesians 4.12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's who we are. That's who we are because of something Christ has done. He calls us. He looks at us as saints. Now, this is just mind-blowing because when we look at the cross, which is the source of this, we see two things happening, one negative, one positive. Negatively, our sins are... <sighs> Come on. Our sins are forgiven. Brilliant. Okay. I think we need to turn the heating off, actually. We'll keep, keep, keep the heating down. Um, and we know that. So Christ took our sins upon himself. But something else happens. My sins, as it were, fall on Christ. But he gives me something in return. Philippians 3, verse 9. That we're found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, my righteousness doesn't come from being religious or being good or moral. Uh, it comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So this is it. When I trust in Christ, my sins go on him, but he gives me his righteousness. God gifts me that. It's as if Christ's lifelong record of perfect obedience is given to the person who trusts him for salvation. So that when Jesus looks at me, when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see my sinfulness, my screwed up life, my chaotic interior, which is all true. He sees Christ. When he looks at you, if you've trusted Christ, he doesn't see 
whatever, the darkness and the despair, he doesn't see that, he just sees Jesus. Now that is mind-blowing from an identity perspective, isn't it? Because he gives me, he gifts me his righteousness. Do I deserve that? No. Can I earn that? No. He gifts me that. I have the righteousness of Christ. Negatively, I am forgiven. Positively, I take on his life. And God thinks of Christ's obedience as belonging to you and to me. That's how he sees us. That's how he looks at us. Can you imagine, for those of us who live in an anxious age, the radical revolutionary nature of living out of that identity of how God sees us, how God sees his people, that's why it says we're saints. We're saints. That's how God looks on us because that's who we are. That's my identity. You know, could you imagine? I mean, this is just mental, really. You know, Prince William growing up. Uh, and then they, they take him aside, you know, when he's three. And he says, um, you know, his dad says, now, lad. Except he, he wouldn't do it like that. Now, lad, you're going to be king one day. And you're going to be the richest person in England. Uh, you will have such influence. You will be on every. Well, that that just do your mind, won't it? And so I guess he's, he's kind of grown into that identity over time. And in the same way, God calls us to grow into our identity as his people. So that's, we, we need to realize, realize who we are. Secondly, be committed to the place of God's blessing. As for the saints who are in the land, here's the, here's the point. God works in physical places with geographical locations. You know, God doesn't work in some ethereal kind of heavenly place. He works in the here and the now. John 1, 14, um, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, God in Jesus had a postcode. You have a postcode? Okay. To exist, you need a postcode and an email. If you don't have any of those things, then we don't exist, do we, really? God had an email address, uh, <laughs> an email address, a postcode. I wonder if it would be in a hotmail. I know, never mind. God's purpose is that his people also have a postcode. As for the saints who are in the, in the land, he has placed us in a local neighborhood. That's why we say the hope of the world is the local church. In other words, this is fleshed out. Our identity in Christ is fleshed out in a specific community with a specific group of people. Yeah, well, that's, that's the problem, isn't it, really? Because I got the idea that I have this identity in Christ. But if this is fleshed out amongst imperfect people like you and me, that's more problematic, isn't it? It is. All the time. But that's the truth. The majority of references to the church in the New Testament is to a specific group of people with a postcode, as it were, in a local place. And in that sense, we have a double identity. Again and again and again, when Paul um, writes to people, he uses this kind of phrase. Here are two examples. 1 Corinthians 1, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. We are in Christ, we are saints, but we're also in a specific place. They were in Corinth. Double identity. In Christ, in a local place. Yeah? Um, Ephesians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus. That's who we are in Christ, saints, but we're also in a specific place. They were in Ephesus, we're in Duckenfield or wherever you live. See that double identity. My new identity in Christ has a concrete, a local implication, a commitment to it. So when people say, well, I'm a Christian, um, but I don't go anywhere, that makes absolutely no sense. It's a bizarre thing, absolutely bizarre. 
Because we have an identity in Christ, but we also have an identity in a specific place. Thirdly, um, be, um, understand what we are, what we are. We are the glorious ones. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones. Now, we get really embarrassed. So I want you, when you, tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning, when you wake up, I want you to look into the mirror before you put your makeup on. I was looking at Andy then. And say, I'm a glorious one. You, you don't, we don't do that as British people do. The Americans do that. But that's the truth of who we are. Why? Again, we don't often, let's be honest, we, we don't often feel that glorious, do we? We get things wrong. We struggle. We're sinners. We're aware in the Western world that the church is dying. We're surrounded by all sorts of controversies and scandals. We don't feel that glorious. But what does it say? As for the saints in the land, they are the glory. We are glorious because of who we are in Christ. We are glorious because of him, not because of anything in ourselves. That's how God looks at us. One of the most impactful truths about the church is found in Acts 20, 28. Paul, speaking to a group of pastors, says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He obtained the church with his own blood. In our culture, we often judge something's value by its cost. I heard a story, true story. Um, it, was, it happened in, in, there was a, a house sale in Paris, and this part of this house sale was a Chinese vase, which had been used by the family for generations, to guess what? What do you put in vases? Flowers in. And the valuer thought, nice piece, but nothing that special. And he valued it at, uh, it was a few thousand, I mean, maybe $20,000 or something. But then, suddenly they, used, they were getting phone calls from all over the world, especially from China. And there was global interest in this one piece. And to cut a long story short, it went for, for tens of millions of dollars in the end. Now, the valuer was sacked. But this is what he said. And the auction house said the same. We still hold to our original valuation. We have no idea. We have no idea why this has gone crazy. We still hold to our valuation. Then he said this. I guess it's worth as much as people are, are ready to pay. Yeah? What did Christ pay for you and for me? His blood. So God the Father would say, you, us, the church, are the most valuable things in creation. Why? Because we cost the most. God incarnate came and shed his blood that we might know him. We are the most valuable things in creation. That's why we're glorious. Um, C.H. Spurgeon said, nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. So that's our theme, this church, a glorious people. How can we live as a glorious people? The foundation of this, that's the game changer, is understanding who we are from his perspective. Next week, we'll see we're the most beautiful thing in God's creation. And we'll, we'll find that really embarrassing as British people. Because, you know, again, look in the mirror and saying, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Well, actually, I might be, I might be pug ugly, but in God's eyes, in God's eyes, I am beautiful. The week after, we'll see something even more shocking, how God looks at his people as his bride, the bride of Christ. God wants to awaken an affection for who we are and why we exist. 
And my response to this, and this is the, 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 the final thing, is to agree with God, which is frankly always a good thing to do. I'm called to delight in what God delights in. What does God delight in? His people. So David says, I'm going to delight in God's people too. As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight. That's my decision, my commitment. Because that's God's decision and God's commitment to us. And he also wants it to be my joy in concrete, practical, local scenarios. In our sins and failures, frustrations and niggles, disappointments, struggles, falling out. Recognize that? But he wants us to discover that joy that each one of us becomes a delight to us. Why? Because we are de a delight to God. That's pretty radical, isn't it? And, and, the, and the way to do that is to see the church through God's perspective. And that's what we're going to be exploring. Wow. It's not rocket science. Let's pray, shall we? And just as I'm saying this prayer, can we go and uh, let the kids know if they could start uh, coming in as well? Thanks, Anne. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for what you have done for us. And I pray that over these coming weeks, you may renew our understanding of who we are as your people. And, and Holy Spirit, I pray that, that you may root that uh, in the realities of our relationships with each other. Teach us what it is to be your people, your glorious people, the church. And we ask this for your glory's sake. Amen. Okay, we're going to stand.